So um, I've been gone. I was away on self-retreat for a month and then uh, apologized, missed last week. I was, I was ill. And um, it's interesting to be back. I, I think partly it's interesting and uh, the piece I'll speak about a little bit is just how valuable it is to unplug. You know, I think when I was contemplating talking tonight, I think mostly I'll do some questions and answers, and that's mostly what I'd like to do. But I thought if I would say one thing about the retreat, you know, I sat, I sat for a month on the East Coast in a small retreat center, and, um, and I didn't talk to anybody for a month. I didn't do any interviews, I didn't check in with anybody, I didn't... I just wanted to stay present with myself, stay present moment by moment. I didn't even have any practice that I wanted to do in particular. Practices, you know, I've done a lot of practices in the last 25 years and the, the right practice came when it needed to come and, and then at times I didn't practice at all. Or, or I, I, yeah, I didn't do any, I wasn't doing formal practice except being present and seeing, well, what's here when we unplug from everything? When we unplug from our worlds, when we unplug from our families, when we unplug from our relationships, when we unplug from our identities, when we unplug from the busyness of our lives and the uh, the involvements that we have. Well, what, what is this? What is this experience of being human? And it's a, it's a wonderful um, opportunity that I would like to encourage you to take in any length of time. I mean, one way we can think about meditating is it's just we're just unplugging for 45 minutes. We're just stopping engaging in the usual, habitual, conventional ways that we engage or we act or we do. And it was so, it was so um, interesting to watch the jet lag, right, of going on retreat. Because there was a jet lag of flying to the East Coast, but that was not a problem because I didn't have to go to sleep at any time and I didn't have to get up at any time. Right? I could just totally let my body follow its own schedule. So. That jet lag wasn't a problem. But the jet lag of doing, you know, that, that momentum that we have of doing and being engaged and being somebody and even being a better somebody and fixing the somebody that we are so that we're even a better somebody than we were before. And the momentum of habit and the momentum of history of the ideas and beliefs and ways that we think about ourselves and think about others and think about the world and live our life through those thoughts and those concepts and those ideas and those beliefs. It's really interesting. And then to feel the jet lag of letting that go and not even having to do anything to let it go because I wasn't doing anything in particular, but just it, it letting go in and of itself just by stopping for a while. Just stopping, just unplugging from the whole world, actually. Except for the natural world, a bit was quite there. 
And I, I think it's invaluable. I think it's essential to unplug, even for 45 minutes a day. Or if you get the opportunity to unplug for a day, to do a day of sitting and walking, to do a day of mindfulness, to do a day maybe at home where you just don't do anything. It's actually even in the, I mean, this is, you know, we're talking from the Eastern tradition, but in the Western tradition, this is what the Sabbath was. The Sabbath was always a day to totally unplug from the world of convention, from the world of uh, of, uh, of uh, society or the conventional way we live our lives and to let the divine world show itself, the holy world, the world of God in the West. For us, it's, it's, we don't quite use that language. We don't use the God language, but it's still we unplug and what reveals itself is the Dharma. The Dharma is what's here. The Dharma is what underlies everything. The Dharma was what underlies our, our, everything we do. And it gets obscured or, or unclear. We can't see the truth of the Dharma, the universal truths of reality. The truth of impermanence, the truth of selflessness, the truth of suffering. It's hard to see those truths in our busyness. And in fact, much of our busyness is in the service of not seeing those truths. We actually don't want to see how impermanent our life is, how transparent reality is, how insubstantial uh, we are, actually, how um, unsatisfactory life is in a certain way, human life is. And, this, and I want to be careful here, because when we talk, I'm describing now what's called the three characteristics uh, uh, of life in Buddhism. <clears throat> and it's the three characteristics are anicca, dukkha, and anatta. Anicca, dukkha, and anatta. And anicca means impermanence. Dukkha means suffering or, or dissatisfaction. And anicca, uh, dukkha, anatta means not self or selflessness or transparency. And these, these characteristics of life um, are a little um, disconcerting to our usual habitual trance-like engagement. And so mostly we don't really want to see them. And it's one of the things that feels threatening at times about unplugging. We like, we, wanna, we like our identities and we like our busyness and we like all the involvement. And none of it's actually bad. It's not, I don't mean to suggest it's bad. Or, they're all, um, there's all kinds of good things to do. But one of, the, one of the fundamental tasks, one of the fundamental responsibilities we're given as human beings is an opportunity to look very deeply at who and what we are. And it takes a certain kind of time. It's, it's hard to see in the middle of our busyness. It's hard to see in the middle of all our doing. It's hard to see in the middle of all our 
engagements and identifications. And of course, if we look at the Buddha's life, we look at that myth of the Buddha, he left everything in order to see what was the truth, what was reality. And sometimes people have a reaction to the myth because he, he left everything in the myth, his family, his world, his riches, his, his role as prince, you know, king to be. I mean, he gave up the good life, it said, you know, of his time in order to look very closely to discover what's here. He unplugged. And in that period, in that time when he unplugged for those years, he spent a lot of time looking to see, well, what is this? What's the truth? What's reality? Who are we? What are the... What are the laws that determine human happiness and human suffering? And then when he awakened, what he taught, what he emphasized was this simple question of what brings happiness, what brings suffering? And So when he describes mindfulness practice, which is the practice that we do here, the practice of simply being awake or aware or present to what's here moment by moment. When he described mindfulness practice, he outlined these different areas to pay attention to. First and foremost, the body. Pay attention to your body. Even now as I'm talking, pay attention to the aliveness the sensations of your body, the hereness of it, the temporality, right, the impermanence, the Nietzsche of your body. It's only going to be here for, you know, a hundred years, probably tops. I was, I was looking at the obituaries today. I was doing one of my practices that I do every day, which is looking at the obituaries. It's true. It's one of my interests. And... Um, I was just so impressed with how many people were in their 90s. You know, I was looking for people closer to my age, and there were, there were definitely a few that I got to look at and see, well, what did they do, and who, who did they leave, and, you know, what happened to them. But I was really surprised. A lot of people in their late 80s and 90s, you know, and of course they show the pictures of them, most of them, but the pictures are usually when they're about 20 or 30 or 40. It's kind of funny. Like, well, why don't you show them when they're 97? Let's see what they look like then. But we like, we, we don't want to really think about that. But, um, so, so the Buddha, in teaching mindfulness, he said, pay attention to your body. Pay attention to the quality of each moment of your experience. What's called the Vedana of experience. What's the, what's the Vedana of your experience? Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neither pleasant nor unpleasant? This moment, this moment of sitting here, this moment of having a body, this moment of hearing the talk, this moment of being mindful of your reaction to whatever I'm saying. Is it pleasant? Is it unpleasant? Is it neutral? One of the great ways to practice mindfulness is simply to notice the Vedana 
what's called the feeling tone of your experience and see where we grasp or the movement to grasp what's pleasant or push away what's unpleasant or to not pay attention when it's not dramatic, either pleasant or unpleasant. And that's a very liberating, can be a very liberating way to practice to see, oh, things can be pleasant and things can be, and we don't have to grasp it. Things can be unpleasant and we don't have to push it away. Things can be more neutral and we can stay awake to it. And there's something that's aware of all three. There's something that's aware of all three and not bound to any of them. So the Buddha described, first of all, the body, paying attention, getting present, centering here to be mindful. He described the feeling tone. He said, pay attention to your mind. The third foundation of mindfulness. Pay attention to your mind. What's your attitude right now? What's the atmosphere of mind? Is it happy or sad? Is it awake or dull? Is it concentrated or agitated? What's the quality of your mind? And the beautiful thing is, he said, you don't have to change it. You don't have to fix it. You don't have to fix yourself in Buddhism. You can be mindful, just like you're mindful of the states of body. You can be mindful of states of mind and see that there's something here that is not the state of mind. There's something that knows the state of mind, that is not bound by the state of mind. I'll I'll give you a a little bit of a more dramatic example. So I was practicing and, you know, by the end of a number of weeks, it can be really, um, it's not that it doesn't get difficult, but it's also workable that you're even unplugged in a certain way from the difficulties. like you can let it happen and it's not a big deal. And so it was actually right near the end of my retreat, about four weeks in, and all of a sudden something grabbed my mind and my mind had been very quiet. And it was a situation and this person and this thing and my mind went and I was like, wow, look, at, you know, it's like I could do this. I could look up at my mind and go, wow, look at that. And, and I couldn't stop it. I couldn't stop it. I mean, I, I could have tried a little bit more to stop it, but I didn't, I didn't want to do anything. So instead I just, <coughs> excuse me, was mindful of it. And it just kept going and going and going. You know how that happens? Your mind starts eating something and gnawing on something. It's like gnawing on, on wood. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> And you're just like, oh my God, I'm going to go crazy. You know, give me a drink or let me go to a movie or, you know, I got to do something to get rid of it. But, you know, there's not so much alcohol at the monastery or (laughs) videos or, you know, internet or there's nothing to do. So I just did the practice, which is pay attention to what's here. And I watched it happen. And I'm watching and all of a sudden I realized, oh, there's something else here. That's not my mind. That knows my mind. It knows this gnawing, rah, 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 rah. But it wasn't, it didn't touch. It didn't touch the knowing. 
And then I thought, oh, what if I just hang out with the part that's aware of my mind? And that was totally fine. Just totally, totally, totally fine. And so the Buddha said, be mindful of the body. Get here, get here. Get here with this physicality that is only here for maybe a hundred years. And then pay attention to the quality of our experience. Is it pleasant? Like I noticed the gnawing was unpleasant. Oh, it's an unpleasant vedna, unpleasant feeling tone to that experience. Of course, as I relaxed with it and unplugged from it, it actually wasn't unpleasant anymore. It was just what it was. It was just my mind, you know, yapping away. It almost didn't have anything to do with me. Except I wasn't, I wasn't dissociated. I was very present, present with my body and the whole experience. And so the body, the feeling tone, the mind itself, the atmosphere of mind. You can do a whole mindfulness practice just, just being aware of what's your, what's your attitude right now about what's happening. So there's what's happening and there's your attitude. And this, this way of practicing is a beautiful way of practicing because it's very um, fluid from the cushion to wherever you are, to sitting and listening to the talk. Just, just be aware now, what's your attitude? What's your state of mind? And you don't have to fix it. You want to be mindful of it. You want to let this quality of mind that can know and doesn't have to be bound by what it knows. You want to, we want to develop, we want to highlight that capacity that we have as human beings. So all of this, and then there's a whole teaching about being mindful and making uh, an understanding reality using the Dharma as a lens. And this is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness of Dharma, as it's called. And it means being mindful of the different um, ways the Buddha understood experience, whether it's the five hindrances or the seven factors of enlightenment or the four... Um, the Four Noble Truths, you can, it, you can, it, it's, it's actually um, using the teachings in addition to the, being mindful of the mind and the feelings and feeling tone and the body to unplug, to unplug, to not be um, at the mercy of the conditioned reality, whether it's the outer conditions or the inner conditions, to find our freedom in the middle of all the conditions, in the middle of sitting here with a body and a heart and a mind, in the middle of being in the world and together, and with all the suffering of the world. And here's the, here's the actual words of the Buddha. He's talking about how to be mindful. You know, and he says, you know, one sees that there is, one is mindful of the body in the body, 
mindful that there is a body, mindful of the rising and the passing of body, both. And then he has his last line. This is the insight of insight meditation. And this is in all the teachings of mindfulness. So he'll give the teachings about how to be mindful, and then he gives us the insight. And the insight, he says, he says, and one remains independent, not clinging to anything in this world. One remains independent, not clinging to anything in this world. And this is, this is what I think about, this is the Buddha talking about being unplugged. One remains independent. One begins to find one's freedom, not clinging to anything in this world. And the, I'm going to come back, I want to bring in the three characteristics a little more because they're important. Remember, they're anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, suffering, not self. These qualities or these characteristics show themselves on retreat, show themselves when we unplug for a while as part of the path to freedom. They're not necessarily freedom itself. They're, they're, they're powerful insights when they really are alive. The truth of impermanence, in some way, it's not a big deal, right? Everybody knows everything is impermanent. Anybody not know that? I just want to check, right? It's, it's actually conventional wisdom. But at a certain point, it can be experientially quite vivid, moment by moment. We can start to be mindful that, like, and this is very common on retreat, that everything is gone. Everything we've known as our life is absolutely gone. It's not so much a, an idea. It's a very vivid and disturbing, actually, reality. It's disturbing to see how stark, how true that is, that actually the whole life is gone except for this moment. It's, 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 and, and it's disturbing in a good way. What it disturbs is our rigid ideas of who and what we are as a fixed entity, as a fixed thing, as a fixed self. And so we'll be on retreat and that truth, the truth of impermanence, will get very vivid, come very alive. It's like not only are we maybe being mindful of our steps and we see that our steps are disappearing as we take them, but even the knowing of the steps is gone in the moment we know it. So it gets very immediate, the truth of impermanence. And not just, it's a good idea, because it's, it's a true idea, but the, the reality of it starts to um, immerse forward into one's immediate reality. And it, it starts to have its um, um, penetrating impact on the heart and mind. Or the dukkha that we're talking about in terms of anicca dukkha natta, the suffering that we're talking about, is not just the obvious suffering of human life. It's not, not just talking about that. It's, it's not just that, oh, people die or there are wars or there's hunger or there's poverty or there's racism or there's, you know, all the isms and the phobias and the fears and the, the obvious suffering. Um, that's all dukkha. But it's actually a more refined understanding of dukkha. 
of the simplicity of dukkha, of the fact that if you're sitting here and your bladder is full and you need to go to the bathroom and you're waiting till the talk ends, that's dukkha. That just being uncomfortable, having a body that gets uncomfortable is a form of dukkha. It's not a bad thing. These aren't bad things, anicca, dukkha, and anatta. They're not bad things. They're not um, penalties because we've done something wrong. They're, they're characteristic of human life. So, <coughs> a cold, right? It's no big deal. It's dukkha. And in the way that I'm talking about it now, it's simple, ordinary, garden variety, everyday human dukkha. That part of human life is characterized by some dissatisfaction or unsatisfactoriness. And that's, it's not a bad thing. The, the, what, su- what real suffering is, is thinking that that shouldn't be there. Or thinking that oh, we should always be happy. That's not how human life works. <coughs> or that things should always be right. Or that whatever we think. But the reality of human life, if we look for our happiness in having a body, it, it just it doesn't work. Bodies don't work that way. You know, when they work good, they're just great, aren't they? You know, if, when your body's working good and you go dance and it just feels great to dance, or if it's working good and you go, you know, running or bike riding, it's just so fun, or, or making love when your body's working right and the other person's body's working right, and, or if you're alone in making love, whatever way you make love, whatever it is, you know, it's great. But it won't stay that way. It's just not how human bodies work. And so seeing the dukkha, again, there's no good word, there's no good English translation. Suffering's not the best translation. Suffering, unsatisfactory, dissatisfactory, unstableness of human life. And it's really, it's conditioned by the impermanent nature of things. Right? Even when we get we have, you get a great Dharma talk, it ends. And then when you get a bad Dharma talk, it's even more dukkha, right? You know, it's like then you, you know, unless you really just want to get up and walk out, you know, and then that's dukkha because then you're thinking, oh, everybody's looking at you and then there's that kind of dukkha, which is related to the third characteristic, which is to related to the idea of self. And so, on retreat, it gets very clear. I mean, retreat is a heaven realm, really. A retreat like this, right? I'm at a little retreat center. There's, uh, it, 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 it holds about 30 people. Most of the time, there were 15 people there, I would say. All my meals are cooked for me. Uh, I have the cushiest yogi job, right? You do a little work. I was the dust mopper. You know what that means? I'm pushing a big dust mop around this beautiful retreat center for 40 minutes, slowly, mindfully, and then I get to go outside and shake the dust mop out. (laughs) I actually learned a lot about curling. (laughs) 
Most people don't know about curling, but I really got the whole... Cur- curling is a Japanese sport. I mean, not Japanese. Canadian sport. Sorry. A Canadian sport that's done on ice where you push a rock, basically, a big kind of shaped rock, and you push it along the ice. <laughs> and I got it. I got the curling trans... I'm like ready to go play curling now after being the dust mop guy. So, so I'm... So and so and it's a beautiful place. I have my own room. I can practice in my room. I can practice in this this meditation hall is so beautiful. It makes Spirit Rock look a little tacky. I mean, I mean, really, this meditation hall is so. You know, it's all bamboo flooring, and there is this huge stone rock. Uh, you know, it's bigger than my arm span. It's maybe it's eight feet. And it comes up, and that's the altar, this huge stone. And the whole meditation, and the stone is in the ground, the meditation hall is built around this stone. And this stone is like, right? It's just rock solid there. It's like, you know, you have the earth right in the meditation hall. It's just, it's, it's so beautiful, really. This is the forest refuge I'm describing, if you ever want to go. And it, it's a heaven realm. And you know, and you get there and you think, oh great, this is great, what a great place to practice, and it's quiet, I mean it is quiet, it's just quiet. And you go into the meditation hall, it's like you don't have to meditate, it's already happening in the hall. No, I mean, seriously, this is not, I'm not speaking metaphorically even here, it is. You know, there's certain energies that happen in meditation halls, and you know, if you go to certain places, certain monasteries or practice, you can feel it. You go into this hall, it's like, you know, you just downshift about four gears, right? Boom. And it's just, oh, this is great, I'm here. And then you start doing your retreat, and you know, and you eat in the morning, and then you practice, and you eat in the afternoon, you practice, and then you eat in the evening, and then you practice, and then you go to sleep early or late, and then you get up early or late, and then you practice, and then you eat, and then you practice, and then you eat, and then you practice and then you eat and then you sleep and then you practice and then you and at some point it, something starts to happen something and I still don't know how to articulate it's like something starts to get worn away worn away some kind of enchantment gets worn away and it's actually very beautiful it can be very it can be disconcerting at first but it's very beautiful because it's, it, it's some kind of... I, you know, I, actually, I just don't know how to articulate. Something starts to get worn away. Some idea we have about reality or, some, or maybe it's all the ideas we have or beliefs. And things start to get very simple. And... Uh, And the dukkha of even having to eat, right? Remember, I'm telling you, remember, it's a very refined level of dukkha. Even the dukkha of having to eat, let alone urinate or defecate or push your dust mop around slowly and mindfully, you know, it's just this certain level of dukkha that shows itself. And I see, what gets worn away is the sense of self. 
There's some idea about oneself, some way of reinforcing the self by all our doing and all our being and all our becoming and all our roles and all, right? This is not, Eugene's not teacher, Eugene's not father, Eugene's not, you know, partner, Eugene's not bike rider, Eugene's not, Eugene's just sitting and walking, sitting and walking. And then God came. <laughs> no. <laughs> it was perfect, thank you. <laughs> and, the, and, and the sense of Eugene starts to become more transparent. And it starts to lose its solidity. It starts to lose its concreteness. And what's talked about in Buddhism is the not-self factor starts to show itself. The transparency of what's here. The, another way we could say it is the utter ordinariness of what's here begins to show itself. You know, the Dalai Lama, he's always said this. Whenever he talks about himself, he said, oh, I'm just a simple monk. I've always, it's always caught my ear because he's clearly one of the most enlightened beings on the planet. And he always says, oh, I'm just a simple monk. And, uh, you know, and you think, oh, well, he's just kind of, you know, he's saying that or he's, he's you know, it's kind of being, he has to say that, right? That's, that's part of his role. But he actually really knows who he is. He knows how simple he really is. How little of him is actually there. In some concretized way, in some fixed way, in some concrete way, in some hard and fast way. He's quite aware of his own transparency or selflessness. That's the other word we can use. And it's not a bad thing. And if you look at the Dalai Lama, you see actually there's someone there. Not only is there someone there, there's someone there who's very mature. He's a very mature person. Very kind, very compassionate, very wise, very helpful. And functions at a very high level. You know, he does work as a, as a, as a, um, a, a political leader, as a, as a leader of a country, you know, in exile as well as a religious leader. So sometimes people think when we talk about selflessness, oh, they'll disappear. And, and actually you will, but it doesn't mean there won't be something here that can totally function, totally, totally act, and not only act, but may be able to actually function, excuse me, better. It, it's not going to, the functioning doesn't come out of some self-centered concern. There's no self-centeredness when the selflessness is complete. There's just the Dharma expressing itself through this human form at this time, in this temporality, for a few moments, for a few years. The Buddha functioned at a very high level of living in nirvana of being totally selfless. And then he not only uh, developed a whole monastic order of men and women who followed him, 
but he engaged with people at every level of society, the kings and queens and political leaders and uh, wealthy people who are very wealthy, you know, the, you know, the Silicon Valley people of his era were very interested in him and he engaged with them and, um, you know, he had, he had donors and he had people who were building monasteries for him and then he engaged with the more what we would call ordinary common folk and farmers and people who were um, uh, of lower caste or no caste or you know, there's a lot of number of stories about uh, courtesans or thieves or or um, uh, um, murderers who engage with the Buddha, all without having a fixed center based on history, based on ideas, based on concept, based on taking ourselves someone to be something based on the past. That he lived, he, he allowed the present to emerge through him. That was his awakening, that was his realization that he didn't have to do anything. That reality could function maybe even better when we unplug a little bit and we don't get in the way. It's often how great artists or sports figures talk about what happens for them, how they can function at that high level. It's like, oh, I got out of the way, you know, and I just, and the shot came. Or I dance, but I'm not there when I dance. But of course we see there's somebody who's doing something that's totally beautiful, but it's the, it's the effortlessness of that beauty that we see functioning. So, I'm actually talked a lot longer than I imagined. I think what really what I would like to encourage you is to unplug a little bit in a really kind way. You don't have to get rid of anything. You don't have to be harsh with yourself about any way that you are plugged in. That's not, the, that's not the, how mindfulness works. You don't have to fix yourself. Okay, I just want to really emphasize that. But start letting the power of mindfulness function and then see what happens. See what happens as you start to become aware of your body as you're in the body and become aware of this experience that we're inhabiting. And then aware of that awareness that's aware of the body, but is not bound by it. Or aware of what is happening in your heart. The quality of your experience, of your, of your heart, open or closed, or pleasant or unpleasant, or satisfying or unsatisfying. And you don't have to fix it even. In fact, it works better if you don't have a preference and you can be mindful of whatever's here. Or maybe it's better said if you're not attached to your preference because you will have a preference. It said the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. And the fellow who translated that 25 years later translated it as the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. 
Because we will have preferences, but we don't even have to be bound by them. <clears throat> and it doesn't mean we... Unplugging doesn't mean we don't act. We may unplug formally, like take a, an hour to sit, or a day to sit, or a week to sit, or a month to sit, or a year to sit. But then at a certain point, we want to re-engage without plugging back in. We want to re-engage without plugging back in in that old, habitual, trance-like way of being in the world, in our relationships, in our work. We want to see what happens when we, when we re-engage and we stay mindful, we stay awake. Oh, what's my body like now, here at work, in line, in the supermarket? making out, doing my taxes. We, we want to re-engage and be mindful of, well, what's the quality of mind that's here when I'm doing my taxes, when I'm watching the Oscars, when I'm, you know, swimming in the bay, or whatever it might be. And to see if we can find our freedom and abide independent, not clinging to anything in this world, and do you know why we don't want to cling to anything in this world? Does anybody know why? Why? Because it doesn't last. Because we can't cling to anything, actually. And in this way, we can come into harmony with this universal dharma, this universal truth that the Buddha realized and, and in the process, it awakened him. So let's sit for a minute, please, together.